The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, a row over the National Gallery in London's building plans. Is it a sensitive makeover or like an airport lounge? Plus, Nigeria's contemporary art scene gathers for an art fair amid devastating floods in the country. And Marc Chagall's The Falling Angel. I talked to the director of the National Gallery, Gabriele Finaldi, about the gallery's controversial plans for changes to its Sainsbury wing and to the architecture critic Rowan Moore about his views on the architect Annabelle Seldorf's designs and how they respond to the original postmodern designs of Robert Venturi and Denise Scott-Brown. Tokeni Petersaj Fabig, the director of Art X Lagos, Nigeria's biggest art fair, tells me about the contemporary scene in the country's biggest city and how the fair is addressing the climate emergency as terrible floods wreak havoc in West Africa. And this episode's work of the week is Mark Chagall's The Falling Angel, a painting made across more than 20 years, which is the centrepiece of a new exhibition at the Schoen Kunsthalle in Frankfurt, Germany. Before all that, details of a new subscription offer. The art newspaper's the perfect gift for art lovers, and you can save more than 50% when you buy a complete print subscription with full digital access for a friend, a colleague, or even as a treat for yourself. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and enter the code XPOD22, that's XPOD22, all in caps. And if you'd like to get the January edition of the paper, please make sure that you subscribe before the 12th of December. Do also subscribe to this podcast and ask sister podcast a brush with wherever you're listening now london's national gallery has a long history of controversial extensions to its building on trafalgar square in 1984 the prince of wales now king charles iii referred to the winning design for the gallery's extension as a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend eventually prompting a rethink the resulting building was the sainsbury wing designed by the philadelphia-based architects robert venturi and denise scott brown completed in 1991 and now regarded as an icon of postmodern modern architecture in London. But now the gallery wants to make changes to the Sainsbury Wing as part of the celebrations for its bicentenary in 2024, with Annabelle Seldorf, the New York-based architect, behind the new scheme. Seldorf is among the preeminent architects of gallery buildings and transformations, from museums to blue-chip art galleries like David's Werner and Hauser and & Wirth, and was this week announced as the architect for the revamp of the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. But her National Gallery designs, which are to be granted or denied planning permission on the 29th of November, have prompted a row over their insensitivity to the original project. Organisations including Historic England and the 20th Century Society have raised objections, while eight former presidents of the Royal Institute of British Architects, or REBA, have written that the plans would change a finely conceived space into an airport lounge. Later, we'll hear from Rowan Moore, the Observer's architecture critic, about his views on the plans. But first, I spoke to Gabriele Finaldi, the director of the National Gallery, about the project and why he feels the changes are necessary. Gabriele, first... Why is the National Gallery wanting to make alterations to the Sainsbury Wing? So we're approaching our bicentenary. Um, We were founded in 1824, so 2024 is just a year and a bit away. Um, I think it's a a real opportunity to do something significant for the National Gallery building. Fundamentally, it's about 
making the welcome to the National Gallery of the same level of quality as the collection itself. I'm very conscious that the welcome at the gallery is, is mediocre at the moment. And I think we have an opportunity in the NG200 project, as we call it, to really make the welcome you know, significant. Uh, we've also got the possibility of um, doing some of the things that the, the National Gallery needs very desperately, like a renewed and uh, revivified uh, research centre, a space for benefactors and members, and uh, a, a renewed learning centre. So the welcome at the Saints Ring is part of a much broader project. Right. Tell me about the mediocrity that you just described, because that is as a result of you effectively having to change the entrance to the building. So we've been very conscious that the main entrance to uh, the gallery traditionally has been the portico. That's part of the original 1838 building designed by an architect called William Wilkins. It is a very symbolic uh, entrance. It's a classical portico. It says, you know, I am the door. The fact of the matter is it doesn't function uh, as a door. It has all kinds of practical uh, limitations. A very significant limitation is that, you know, once you've gone up the stairs, which are in a way already a, a limitation and a barrier, is that there's just very, very little space behind it. And once you go through the door, uh, you're essentially presented with another set of steps that take you up to the galleries. The other thing that I think is also quite significant is that you know, the way the National Gallery has been conceived, the way the collection has been developed over the decades, is it's essentially a story that takes you from you know, medieval Italy to early 20th century France. And there is a sort of narrative and a logic to it. The portico entrance takes you to the end of the story. The saint Ring entrance takes you to the beginning of the story. But more significantly than that, it's the Saints Ring that's going to allow us to have the necessary space to provide for a proper welcome. It also provides the space that's necessary for all the kinds of amenities and all the kinds of needs that need to be met for a you know, 21st century museum visiting audience. The current space as it is, it was always intended as an entrance, but not the main entrance. And also... It seems to me that Venturi Scott Brown had a very, very particular kind of theory about how they wanted it to be experienced. Is your contention that that doesn't work for the 21st century visitor effectively? Venturi Scott Brown spoke very eloquently about the way in which you gradually approach the collections. And they talk about a a sort of dark, crypt-like space where you enter the Saints Ring as the secondary entrance. You're absolutely right. Um, and then you gradually make your way up the staircase and your eyes grow accustomed to the natural light that then you encounter in the main floor galleries, which are very, very beautiful galleries. And I always describe them as practically perfect. I mean, they are amongst the most beautiful galleries anywhere in any building. When you say practically perfect, do you mean in terms of the condition that the paintings are able to be held in as well as the beauty of the galleries? Yes, I think it's both their, their design, their scale, their shape, but the way in which natural light enters them and the kind of experience that they provide. I mean, these are galleries that were designed for those particular pictures. So, you know, the intelligence of the uh, architects and the sensitivity to the collection, I think, is absolutely manifest when you get to the collection. I think what's more difficult is, and I like to use the phrase that um, Denise Scott-Brown uses herself, that the way the building was designed was a little bit like a cheese and ham sandwich. So tall galleries at the top, tall galleries in the basement, temporary exhibition galleries, but everything in between was sort of squashed up. 
um, and essentially you enter a space which has a rather low ceiling. Uh, it's heavily columnated, so that it's very difficult to you know, get a sense of your bearings there. And I think if that's going to be our main entrance, we need to find ways to make orientation clearer. We need ways to um, open up the, the, the space. I mean, remember that the Saints Ring opened in 1991. Just before COVID, we were having 6 million visitors, which is 50% more than was being handled, let's say, in the early 90s. So, you know, things have changed, you know, concerns about security, concerns about how you're welcomed in a major metropolitan museum have changed. I think one of the most extraordinary things about the Saints Ring is the way in which you walk in directly off the street at ground level. It really is very remarkable and very rare in any museum. And that was very much the way that Venturi and Scott Brown wanted it to be and the way the trustees wanted it to be. And that has also worked out very magnificent. It's a very democratic gesture. I mean, the National Gallery has always been about, you know, this is the nation's collection. These pictures belong to everyone. How can you signify that with bricks and mortar? Well, you do it how the Saints Ring did it. And in a way, I think what we're proposing is, is an extension of that, you know, mm. to make that even more uh, evident and uh, to make the spaces even more welcoming and useful. A lot of the objections to the new scheme are precisely concerned with the Sainsbury Wing as the main entrance, aren't they? But one of the things it seems to me that not many of the critics are talking about is about access for people with disabilities. It seems crucial that you say to people with disabilities we want you to come in the same entrance as everybody else. You shouldn't have to go in the secondary entrance or a side entrance, etc. That's absolutely the case. If you think of the portico itself, well, you've got a a set of 25 steps and then another set of 25 steps to take you up to the uh, gallery. It's most inconvenient, most difficult. Even if you come through the Getty entrance, which is adapted especially for people in wheelchairs or prams and so on, you have to go up one small lift then you get into the Annenberg Court, and then you've got another lift that takes you up to the main floor. So it's not easy for people with special requirements to make their way into the gallery. The Sainsbury Ring will help us to resolve that. Now, the way the Sainsbury Ring ground floor is, is designed, it's sort of split into three blocks. One is sort of back of house, that's where our pictures come in and where our deliveries and so on. And that's um, from the exterior, that's the brick bit, as it that's, were. Yeah, that's the bit on the side. And then inside, you've got... Uh, a space which is divided into two. One is the, the shop, which is a very oversized shop. I think it was thought to be right at the time. I think today we'd certainly consider it to be an unnecessarily large shop. And then uh, the remaining third is the sort of vestibule for the public. So we're proposing to open up that space, essentially to double it, and to open up uh, some double height to left and right, both to bring in more natural light into that space, while retaining that sense of a crypt-like entrance in the middle area and also to, I think, provide more views within the building and to gain more views to the exterior. One of the things I think that Ventura and Scott Brown were very clever about was to make the exterior visible from the interior. So if you go up into the galleries, there are some windows that allow you to look through onto the, uh, the great glazed staircase and out onto the square. The proposal that Annabel Zeldorf, who is our architect for the NG200 project, is making is really about enriching that experience even more. So it's not just about looking out, it's also about looking in from the outside. And I think with our public institutions, our cultural institutions, we're all looking for ways in which the barrier between, uh, as it were, the, the, the city or the public space, the civic space, 
and the institution itself can be reduced or dissolved, while bearing in mind that we have security concerns and all of that, of course. Uh, but I think that the project, in a way, is a step on from what Venturi Scott Brown were proposing with the 1991 building. A lot of the concerns from architects in particular and people with a knowledge of the kind of postmodern architectural idiom relate to this idea of reversibility. We don't have very many public buildings in London, in the UK generally, that are postmodern and are great examples of that by very distinguished architects. By making the changes you're proposing, they aren't reversible and therefore we lose a whole chunk of a very important architectural style. How do you respond to that? Well, what I'd say is that when they were designing the building, there were many things they didn't know about how the building would be uh, used or indeed how um, museum visiting in general would uh, progress over the subsequent decades. So we now know what that's like and we know what kind of uh, needs and requirements we need to meet. I think what's important is to recognise that it's a relatively small part of the building that's being affected by uh, our proposals. You could say that the really significant bits of the building, which are the facade on the exterior, that wonderful facade that sort of runs off the Wilkins facade and then turns the corner into Pall Mall East and, and, and tells a wonderful story of you know, how the building wants to relate to uh, the surrounding kind of urban fabric. You know, and the, the galleries themselves will remain untouched. The monumental staircase the Caesaring Theatre, the exhibition galleries down below, all all of those are untouched. It's essentially that ground floor uh, and the first floor or mezzanine uh, level which are being adapted to really, you know, adapt to what are, you know, current needs of the gallery. Yeah. Again, the sort of contention of the architects that are particularly critical of it is that you lose the orchestration that Venturi and Scott Brown conceived as in you talked about there's this crypt and then the staircase which has got darkened glass to give more light but not full light and then you go up into the galleries and and there's this famous anecdote that Denise Scott Brown says about how people thought the paintings had been cleaned because they looked so radiant in those spaces there's a dramaturgy that they are describing would you maintain that you actually are keeping that with the redesign? I think there are some elements of that uh, that are staying, but if you're making the kinds of changes that you propose, you can't retain every single aspect of the building. I think we've you know, looked very carefully at how we can retain that sense of slightly compressed space in the ground floor entrance vestibule um, that we want to retain. There's also a certain sort of materiality that we also want to retain. You know, There were some early ideas of of maybe using wood and so on. Wood is not really a material that appears very much in the Saints Ring. So we've moved towards a materiality that's more consonant with the original designs and retaining some of the kind of massiveness of the piers there. So I hope that people will recognise that the character of the Scott Brown designs uh, is being uh, respected. Although, of course, you know, we do need to make certain changes to enable us to do what we think is important for the gallery. In terms of those materials, as you say, designs have changed based on feedback, is that right? Yes, so this is an iterative uh, process, this is how we do things in this country. So we made some initial design proposals, then you have the statutory bodies who look at the proposals, and the public too, and specialists can make observations of support or objection. We've also been in touch with uh, Denise Scott-Brown herself, and as a result of that process, uh, we have gone back and looked at some of the proposals that we've made earlier 
and uh, modified those. So it's an iterative process, and frankly, I think we're in a better place than we were at the beginning. Can you share with me what Denise Scott Brown said? Because obviously, you know, she's the architect that lots of people seem to be speaking on behalf of. But what was her reaction? What has she said? So Denise quite rightly says that it's painful for any architect to have to contemplate changes to, to their designs, particularly to a building that was, you know, so carefully thought through and had quite a difficult birth, uh, let's say. We certainly tried to reassure her that, in a way, what we're talking about is an evolution of the Sainsbury's design, really to meet what are the needs of the gallery today. And in some ways, the Sainsbury's has been given much more prominence than it had before, and uh, I think its qualities will be more admired. Mm-hmm. The paintings upstairs in those wonderful galleries are not there now. They've, they've actually, they're no longer on display because of the development, I presume. It's going to take quite a while, isn't it? How long will the Sainsbury Wing galleries be out of action, as it were? So you're right. We're now at the beginning of November, and the Sainsbury Wing has been emptied of pictures. A large number of those have been moved into the Wilkins building, so they're still visible, and we've worked quite closely with the public and with you know, teachers and uh, universities to have a sense of which the pictures that are most important. So, you know, Leonardo, of course, is there. You know, Piero Francesca, Botticelli, all those artists are well represented. You will find a slightly denser hang in the uh, older galleries of the building, but even that's interesting in itself, and I'm surprised how well uh, the public is, is responding. We've had to do that because, of course, there's a lot of activity going on in the gallery. So getting the galleries ready for, I hope, you know, planning permission, which will come, I hope, quite soon. And that will enable us to, to start work, uh, hopefully, in the spring. And was the appointment of Annabelle Seldorf, that was based on a competition or was she sort of anointed the architect? No, no, there was an international uh, competition. We announced an international competition uh, looking for an architect-led design team We weren't looking for specific designs at that stage because we very much wanted to work together with the architect-led design team to produce the effective proposals. There was a a large number of firms that um, presented themselves. That was whittled down to a shortlist of six, and uh, it was that shortlist of six that eventually led us to choosing Annabelle Seldorf, who is a New York-based architect, very experienced in museum work and museum adaptations, Mm -hmm. very elegant architect, uh, working together with Purcell, which is a London-based heritage architecture specialist, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, they work very closely with us on the designs, and that's what's got us to where we are now. So in that brief, it was established right from the start, it's going to be turning the Sainsbury Wing into the main entrance, an effective main entrance. There was never a can you think of how we might be able to turn the entrance of the Wilkins building into the main entrance again? No, but you need to remember, Ben, that um, there was an East Wing project uh, some years ago uh, which aimed to look at turning the the sort of East End into a new entrance for the gallery. That was only half completed uh, with what we call the Annenberg Hall and the Getty entrance, which is very, very useful to us. But the plan as it was then, it's a plan that dates from the late 90s, involved you know, putting a huge staircase on the front of the portico and opening up another huge Annenberg Court-type building on the uh, west side of the building. It simply didn't happen. I think the trustees felt that the plans weren't going to work. I think it was felt to be hugely expensive, massively disruptive, and that um, you know, Westminster wouldn't give permission for it. So the decision day is the 29th of November... If it goes your way, when's the first spade in the ground, as it were? 
So, um, I was saying before that we've already uh, started preparing the groundwork in the sense that we've moved the pictures out. My colleagues call it mobilisation. Um, and, of course, it's mobilisation with a view to hopefully getting a positive response from, from Westminster so that we can then start work probably in February, March. And the idea is to open the new building when? So, the project, NG200 project, which, as I described, is, is more than just the, the Saints Ring, you know, the public realm in front of the Saints Ring, includes um, all those other things that I mentioned as well. But we would hope that phase one, which would include the Saints Ring and the public realm, uh, you know, that northwest corner of Trafalgar Square, which sort of opens up and creates a sort of square attached to the square almost, that, I hope, would be ready in the spring of 2025. So the culmination of our bicentenary year. Gabrielle, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Rowan Moore is the architecture critic of the Observer newspaper in the UK and wrote in June that the Seldorf designs were, paraphrasing King Charles, an over-smooth facelift on the visage of an old friend. I spoke to him about his reservations. Rowan, can we just set the scene in terms of the architects first? Tell us a bit more about Venturi Scott Brown. Well, Venturi and Scott Brown were extremely significant architects in the late 20th century. They really pushed the idea that later came to be called postmodernism, that buildings should speak, they should have kind of narrative content, they shouldn't just be kind of abstract compositions. One of the things about the Sainsbury Wing is it's a landmark postmodern building. Yes. Is it fair to say that there aren't that many great postmodern public buildings in the UK, or is that a, is uh, that a, a bit of a misunderstanding? Well, there's not that many, no, because it wasn't a great period for patronage of public buildings uh, because it coincided with Margaret Thatcher's government. So, yes, there are not many great postmodern public buildings in Britain. Um, in terms of their work, how typical or atypical is the Sainsbury Wing? Well, it's not quite like anything else they did, but that's a lot to do with its setting and its location, which they were always highly responsive to. So the fact it's next to the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square meant they did it differently from, from any other building they did. But it absolutely is very representative of their concerns and attitude and approach to architecture. Right. It strikes me that there's an extravagance in some of the other buildings and almost a theatricality that is only very subtly there in the Sainsbury Wing. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is fair. So the Sainsbury Wing is a lot to do with how do you stand alongside the Wilkins building, but then insert a modern cultural building inside it. And in what ways is it typical of that style, would you say? Um, well, the way it plays games with architectural language and architectural style. So they take the detail of Wilkins, of the pilasters and the mouldings and so on, and they copy it very, very literally. But they then do something that Wilkins would never have done, which is to kind of bend it round the corner and then cut holes in it, which are kind of very sharp cut horizontal openings. And, of course, this was in the context where there'd been an enormous controversy about what should be built on that site. Prince Charles calling previous proposal a monstrous carbuncle. And so this project came out of that cultural context. And so they're really saying, OK, this is how you make a building continue 
the enclosure of Trafalgar Square made by these 19th century classical buildings. But we're then going to have a bit of fun with it as well. And we're also going to respond to the fact that this is a modern building with different kind of expectation to what a gallery is. And in terms of that debate that happened around, you know, as you say, the monstrous carbuncle quotes, etc., to what extent was the birth of the Sainsbury Wing in its final incarnation a difficult birth in terms of the way it was received at the time and all that kind of thing? It was received quite critically, including by myself, I have to say, because it came out of the sort of smoke and rubble of those kind of Prince Charles wars, which were very polarised. And actually, I mean, I think I got that wrong substantially. That's a very honourable thing to say as a critic. (laughs) Because um, I don't think I got it all wrong, but I definitely overreacting to the fact that this was kind of something on the Prince Charles side, seemingly, when in fact it's more subtle than that. And it's actually sort of trying to bridge that gap. And I guess that tends to be what happens to kind of peacemakers is they get attacked from both sides. Um, I mean, another important thing about it is that it's using that sort of grand institutional architecture, but it's also trying to be accessible in all meanings of the word so so you you walk in you don't go up a big flight of steps which is obviously good if you're a wheelchair user but also it's it's encouraging people just to wander in off the square rather than going through a kind of grand forbidding portico and then there were some ideas that were never really fully realized to make the shop like a sort of sweet shop you might find in a street so that things were more engaging and popular but then the other important thing is it was structured as a sequence when you get inside from dark to light. So you you went inside, there's quite a low space, which is partly out of their hands, that that's just what you ended up with if you kind of put all the factors in. You end up with quite a low ceiling space. But they decided to make a kind of architectural virtue out of that by making that deliberately kind of quite low and shadowy. And then you got this quite fantastic staircase with a view back into the square. And then you end up in the really fantastic galleries at the top, which... I think did a really good job of learning from things like Soane's Dulwich College Picture Gallery, doing quite well-known stuff about, you know, how you get top light in and so on. So there's nothing kind of radical about that, but just doing it well and then having a few little kind of quirks like these funny fat columns that give it a bit of personality as well. And and I suppose the, the debate around this new scheme is about what the national see as a mediocre entrance to the space and and that's the term that Gabriele Finaldi said to me you know and you know to what extent is it not actually mediocre but actually quite special and that seems to be the core of this debate because how distinguished is that space if you like the entrance space I mean it's definitely compromised and you know there was some sort of battles during the design and realization of it so it's not exactly how Venturi Scott Brown wanted it and they would have liked to use colour differently, for example. I mean, I would say buildings evolve. You should be able to change buildings. But I have two problems with what they're actually proposing. One is the kind of language they're using is Annabelle Seldorf's kind of architecture is just completely not engaging with Venturi's and Scott Brown's kind of language. So I think if you're going to change it, you have to create some kind of dialogue between the new and the old and as far as I can see what's happening with this design is it's your very kind of generic high class art gallery design of a kind that Annabelle Seldorf does and it's really being introduced into this building as if it was any other building that I can just see no kind of rapport between her work and Venturi's work and 
I mean, I guess Venturi and Scott Brown, they always want to give their spaces character and personality. And this current approach is really about creating a kind of blank canvas that's very sort of unassertive. Well, it is assertive because it creates a different character, but it's about being neutral, if you like. Then I think the other problem is that I have a very big question whether they're pursuing the right strategy in terms of where the main entrance should be, because you know this whole thing is driven by the fact that the Sainsbury Wing has become, by default, the main entrance to the, to the National Gallery, which it was never intended to be. And obviously that huge numbers of people are now being funneled through there and will be funneled through there. I'm sceptical that's ever really going to work, because the, because the building is just as big as it is. You can't make it significantly bigger and I think you're just going to sort of end up with quite an ugly compromise if you try and pursue the line they're they're taking I mean I understand also there's an idea that it's good to give the visitor a a sequence through the National Gallery that is chronological Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's such an important concept that it's worth pursuing come what may because I think most people you know your normal experience of going to a great big art gallery is usually not purely chronological you can pick up that story if you want to but most people I think Sort of go in different directions around the building. Yeah, it's interesting that because so much museum thinking around this question has been about actually taking that linearity out of the question entirely and dealing yeah. with it more thematically or subject based yes. or whatever. And nobody, anybody ever goes to the National Gallery and starts a building and goes to the end in one day looking at every picture because that's sort of not really possible. Yeah, so those are the issues around it. And I think it would be a very great shame if the National Gallery doesn't treat its kind of architectural inheritance as seriously as it does its artistic inheritance. The, the interesting thing about that is it seems to me that the Nationals is stuck between a rock and a hard place in the sense that the Wilkins entrance is an impossible entrance yes. to modify in a way which is able to be accessible by people with disabilities mm. and people that are able yeah. just to walk in. Then you have the question of, okay, if the Sainsbury Wing is that, then that's compromised too. So do you think they ought to just completely rethink and have well, an entrance I mean, somewhere there, else? Yeah, yeah, there was a previous plan. So in the mid-noughties, I think it was, the architects Dixon-Jones did a scheme, half of which was realised, which is the sort of staircase and exit you get on the right-hand side of the building as you're looking at it from Trafalgar Square. But there was a whole other half of that project, which was doing a corresponding entrance on the left-hand side, which was never built. I believe it was called the project with only one testicle after it was finished. <laughs> and that was never realised because I think it was kind of you know hard to get donors to give money for a project when half of it's already been built and has got the glory of new piece of work being done. I have no idea what the sort of political fundraising administrative difficulties are of implementing that scheme or a modern version of that scheme but that seems to make a lot more sense than what they're currently proposing right just in terms of the scheme by Annabelle Seldorf as you say it's the language is seemingly very distinct to the Venturi Scott Brown building the letter from several past presidents of Reba describes it as an airport mm. lounge. Do you concur with that, or do you think there um, are sort of do you think there are merits in its own language, or do you think it needs to be ripped up and started again? I I do agree with that. I, I mean, I think it, it really is airport like. I can't really see any merit in it at all. I mean, something I find strange about it is that Annabel Seldorf talked about both inside and out how she wants to create a place where people can kind of gather and sort of just be there. But I can't see anything in the design that actually encourages that. 
Um, so on the outside, she's proposing to remove this little fenced garden mm. that is sort of private to the gallery and replace it with some paving. But it's just paving. It's not even sort of showing places to sit at the moment. There doesn't seem to be a great sense of sort of liveliness and specificity and what it would be to make this place special. And she's a very respected architect who's done you know, very highly regarded art spaces. But I think this calls for a different kind of approach because it's not primarily about designing a space for art it's about designing a space for people i just think you know there are architects out there some of whom were shortlisted in the competition who have just got a kind of touch and feel and you know just speaking the same language and choosing an architect for a project is not just choosing the biggest name or the person who is in some sense you know very good at some things it's choosing the right architect for the right project and i think there's also a bit of a cultural issue here which we also saw in the Burrell collection in Glasgow that was recently renovated, which is that the kind of architecture that Ventura and Scott Brown are doing, were doing, it can have the idea that architecture should be a thing that makes its presence known and therefore, you know, sometimes you know, gets in the way slightly, if you like. Whereas the modern approach to museums is you want a minimum obstruction between, you know, the public and the displays and you want to create the smoothest possible flows through which it does tend i would say to lead to somewhat airport like and sort of shopping mall like spaces because those are the same considerations are being applied there in a way is it the hardest thing to do as an architect because you have to show on the one hand extreme sensitivity and on the other hand a very clear imaginative response to the space yeah but it should be fun you know it should be enjoyable for the architect and for the clients and for the end users. I mean, you know, that's what Ventura and Scott Brown did in relation to Wilkins. And, you know, most architectural historians are agreed that the Wilkins building is somewhat mediocre itself. But then their approach to Wilkins was not to make those kind of judgments, just to say, well, that's what we have, so let's work with it. And I think if you're doing something to the Sainsbury Wing, that should be the same attitude. Rowan, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more about this story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android and iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, Lagos and the Nigerian contemporary art scene and Chagall's The Falling Angel. Before all that, here's this week's news bulletin. A late work by Piet Mondrian has potentially been hanging upside down for more than 75 years. The painting, New York City 1 from 1941, is on view in Mondrian Evolution at the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen in Dusseldorf, Germany. The abstract work is composed of vertical and horizontal lines in red, yellow and blue, but it's not signed. It has been displayed with its five most densely spaced lines at the bottom of the picture since 1945. However, it's orientated the other way in a photograph taken in Mondrian's studio shortly after his death in 1944, showing the closely spaced lines at the top. The exhibition's co-curator, Suzanne Mayabuza, writes that it may no longer be possible to determine whether the orientation previously considered correct is in fact valid, but adds that if the work is rotated 180 degrees, it functions extremely well. 
The British Museum is to prioritise the refurbishment of its dilapidated Greek and Assyrian galleries. The work is part of the museum's ongoing Rosetta project, an ambitious plan to modernise its infrastructure and redisplay its entire collections. A master plan for the revamp was agreed by trustees last month, but a museum spokesman declined to say when the renovation of the Greek and Assyrian galleries is expected to begin and end, what its projected cost is, and crucially, where the Parthenon marbles will go while the work is underway. The shoddy conditions of the galleries have refuelled calls for the permanent return of the Parthenon marbles to Athens for display in the state-of-the-art Acropolis Museum. And finally, after the art market bounced back better than expected in 2021, the global import and export of art is on course to reach record levels by the end of 2022, topping the $30.5 billion achieved in 2019. This is despite the war in Ukraine, spiking inflation and a cost of living crisis. The findings are in the latest collector survey published this week by Art Basel and UBS and authored by the cultural economist Claire McAndrew. Surveying 2,700 high net worth individuals across 11 markets, McAndrew concludes that demand from art collectors continues to be extremely resilient and spending plans for the remainder of 2022 are extremely bullish. You can read more on all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This November, Christie's New York continues its innovative approach to presenting the art of the 20th and 21st centuries. Featured among the six auctions of the 2021 sale series are Jean-Michel Basquiat's dynamic rendering of Sugar Ray Robinson and Amadeo Modigliani's portrait of his great muse Beatrice Hastings, among works from collections being sold to fund charitable causes. Preview the works at the Rockefeller Centre Galleries from the 12th of November, and in the meantime, browse the sales online at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, the seventh edition of the Art X Lagos Fair opens this weekend at a time of crisis in Nigeria. Floods have devastated the country. More than 600 lives have been lost, with thousands injured and about 1.3 million people displaced, according to the country's Ministry of Humanitarian Affairs. So, how has this affected the fair and the art scene more widely? And can the event address the climate emergency, one of the underlying causes of the floods? I spoke to Artex Lagos's founder and director, Tokeni Peterside Shvabig. Tokeni, it's the seventh edition of Artex Lagos. It's happening amid a moment where the country is under a lot of pressure. There's these recent floods. Can you say something about this environment in which you're presenting this year's fair? Yeah, so it is a challenging time for Nigeria, like many countries coming out of COVID-19. We are having some economic challenges. We're also now having environmental challenges. And in parts of the country that are further away from Lagos, there are also some security challenges. And um, this is something that we have spent a lot of time thinking about as we develop the seventh edition of Artex Lagos. What is the role of art at a time like this? What is the role of artists? What should we be trying to say? What conversations and dialogue should we be trying to spark? How can we create a space for our various audiences that allows for inspirational encounters, but also important conversations? And that's the role that we play in our society. And so our fair, Artex Lagos, is very much a fair with a bit of a difference and a bit of a twist. That's really interesting because, of course, the art fair, it's still a fair. You know, you've got galleries, 31 of them, selling their art. So to what extent can you really address those issues? Because, of course, 
you know, fundamentally, those galleries need a return on their investment. They need to come away thinking they've had a good experience in terms of their livelihoods at the fair. Yeah, it's it's actually a very tricky balance. And it's one that I would say we're still working through and still navigating. And so the way we currently do it is that you have the commercial section of the fair, of course, which is where these 31 galleries will be positioned and very strongly so. A number of them are presenting work by artists that is thought-provoking, not necessarily speaking directly to the issues at play now, but speaking to broader conversations that society would like to have. At the same time, we also have our curatorial section, and this is where our theme each year comes into play, and with this year's theme being who will gather under the baobab tree. And it is that theme that determines the special projects that we organize at the fair, the talks program, the performance program, and so much more of what we do. So we're sort of in this hybrid space of a curated experience, as well as a more kind of market-driven one, by providing a very important space as well for African artists and galleries who support art from Africa and the diaspora to also have economic exchange. Have there been any practical challenges from the floods elsewhere in the country? And I know Lagos was affected, but not as bad as some other parts of the country. Is that right? So Lagos was affected more on the fringes of the city, at the city centre and in the main kind of commercial um, areas, less so, not, not at all, actually. And so there have been, I would say, the usual logistics challenges that one would face in getting a fair and a very ambitious production like this organized in a city such as Lagos, but we have not experienced anything out of the ordinary. If there have been challenges, it's been more to do with the economic climate in the country and what that has simply meant with regards to our production and, of course, the different expenses and things like that that we have. And of course, the 31 galleries include local galleries, but they also include pan-African galleries. And as you say, the diaspora. So there are, for instance, galleries from London and, and um, yes. from Luxembourg. Yes. So tell us a bit about that makeup and to what extent you need them to frame what they're presenting within the African context, if you like. So it's really interesting this year to have such a diverse gathering of galleries. You know, usually regions of Africa, such as West Africa, Francophone West Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa, very well represented. And yes, we will have galleries from London, but this year we have more galleries from Paris joining us. We have more galleries from Spain and Madrid joining, from Luxembourg, from the UAE. We have galleries from New York joining online. So it's a very, very diverse gathering of galleries, more diverse than we've had in the past. The vast majority of them work closely with artists from Africa organically within their roster. And what we find with these galleries and the work and the artists they present is that they each have their focus at any particular point in time. So there are certain galleries who will naturally kind of lean more towards artists who speak to social issues. And then there are others where it can be a bit more about fantasy and taking audiences away to a place of escape, which is also important at times like this as well to provide a different place in which to think and be and exist or to think about the future or to think about the past. I mean, we can go in so many different directions. And tell us about the theme, because it seems to me that that speaks to all sorts of different things. It speaks to, on the one hand, communities, 
On the other hand, it does bring into question this idea of the climate change, the climate emergency. And of course, the fair coincides with COP27, which is happening this weekend too. This is one of the things we love about our scene, developed by a writer, Toby Onobolu, and who will gather under the baobab tree is essentially an invitation to the artist community, to our audiences, to have a conversation that first begins by looking back at the past, looking back to the organic, authentic ways in which African societies organize themselves. What were our ideologies, our philosophies? How did we approach things, for example, such as the environment? How did we approach the structuring of societies politically? How did we approach spirituality? How did we approach rhythm, dance, movement, and so much else? And then the idea is to say, what can we learn from the past that we then can decide to leverage at this point in time when we all have issues to grapple with, whether you're in Nigeria, across Africa, whether in the UK, and then how can we learn and move forward with those ideas and new ones into the future? And what you've said about the environment is, of course, really important. If one looks back to ancient African societies, there was such a reverence for the environment. And you look at the baobab tree, which in fact, in many cases, can stand for thousands of years, and it speaks to the idea of the importance of nature. So I'll give you an example of one of the special projects we'll be doing at the fair this year by a Senegalese Moroccan artist, Linda Dunia. She's created a special project called Once Upon a Garden that basically says, imagine a world in which three, four, five hundred years time, humans have so destroyed the environment that people then have to create these digital gardens in which they can recreate and relive all of the vast flora and species that we currently enjoy and take for granted. And this is going to be the very first experience, a digital artificial intelligence created model that you will experience the minute you walk into the fair. We will then have a conversation with her and another artist, Ronti Bam, speaking to these issues. The performances at the fair as well will speak to that. So yes, there is very much a connection between our theme and the advancement of society, especially as that relates to the environment as well. Tell us about the community in Lagos now, because of course there have been extraordinary flowerings of cultural activity in Lagos over the years. One thinks particularly of the cinematic generation in the 50s to 70s. Tell us more about the current scene. Is there a particular energy in Lagos at the moment? The energy in Lagos, honestly, I think is unrivaled anywhere else in the world. Lagos has this dynamism, this energy, this youthfulness. It's experienced in our music industry, in our fashion industry, and now you experience it as well in our visual arts industry. You take this week alone, which is the week in which Artex Lagos is the largest event, but it's a week that has actually flourished and mushroomed around our fair. There are dozens of art events, exhibitions, screenings, talks, performances happening all over the city. And for us, it's very exciting because, you know, when we began six years ago, we were the ones knocking on the door of, you know, stakeholders in the industry saying we're creating this fair. It is bringing lots of international visitors and regional visitors, and we want you to showcase the vibrancy of our city. And now today we're overwhelmed with requests to be put onto our program. I mean, even the artist Yinka Shonibare, who's based in London, the British Nigerian artist, he is bringing a whole bunch of visitors this year for them to experience his gas foundation, which I also sit on the board of. And, you know, it's just such an incredibly exciting time. So Lagos is a pulsating city. It is energetic. Its creative scene is really 
probably one of the most dynamic you'll come across in the world. And we're very excited to be at the epicenter of that through the changes that we have brought into the art ecosystem here. I wanted to ask about the connection with the wider cultural community and particularly museum community because we're hearing a lot at the moment about at last you know museum infrastructure being set up in different parts of Africa including Nigeria. Is it your hope that you can connect the fair through its activities to museums to curatorial communities beyond the kind of art market as it were? Yes very much so. I think you know in Lagos if I use that as an example there are still quite a small number of us who are very critical players in this industry. So the truth is that we all work together. You know, Lagos has a new museum which has existed for a couple of years, the Yemisi Shilon Museum of Modern Art. We are very collaborative with them. You know, our guests will be going for guided tours at the museum as part of this year's program. Lagos also has a new museum on the horizon, which should be open end of this year or beginning of next year, which is the John Randall Center for Yoruba Heritage and Culture. Our guests are getting to have a private tour behind closed doors of the museum before it even opens. There is a museum opening in Benin City in a number of years, which David Ajay is designing the Edo Museum of West African Art. And so we maintain very strong friendships with all of these institutions, because the truth is, Artex Lagos, yes, gets categorized as an art fair, but we are so much more than that in this environment, simply because the infrastructure for the visual arts is still very much in development in our society here. And so we do a lot more within our community in terms of staying connected to institutions and other players than other fairs around the world, for example, might do. And tell us about, I know early on in the life of the fair, you were hoping that you might connect more with a sort of Ministry of Culture for Nigeria. Have you made further steps in terms of state support or state acknowledgement of what you're up to? So in terms of state acknowledgement, we definitely have that. You know, the governor of Lagos State, who's, you know, in the top five most powerful people in the country, is a very big supporter of Artex Lagos. He comes to the event almost every year and reiterates always publicly his support for our work and what we do in helping to reposition perceptions of Lagos, let's say, on the global stage. His culture ministry are also very excited about what we do. Now, do we have a formal program of working with them? No, we don't. But we maintain very, very good relationships with them, meaning that at any point in time when they call us for support, assistance, whatever it may be with their programs, or we want to get certain things done, the door is very much open on both sides. So we do get help from government agencies, but that's the more kind of technical, boring stuff like traffic management and security and things that I don't know that the the listeners want to hear about. (laughs) But in terms of working together on formal programs, no, we haven't started that yet. Well, Tokini, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Artex Lagos opens to the public tomorrow and Sunday, the 5th and 6th of November. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This weekend, the Schoen Kunsthalle in Frankfurt opens the exhibition Chagall World in Turmoil, looking at a less well-known period of the Russian-born artist Mark Chagall's work, the 1930s and 1940s, in which the artist's famously luminous palette becomes darker. Among the highlights is The Falling Angel, a work begun in the 1920s but not completed until the 1940s. I spoke to the exhibition's curator, Ilka Vorman, about the painting. 
Ilka, let's talk about Marc Chagall at the moment that he made this painting, because actually it's not a moment, is it? It's a series of moments across a number of years. So it is a series of moments because this painting was not painted in one year, one month, several weeks. It was painted during a time frame of more than 20 years. Chagall started it in 1923, so that was the moment when he arrived in Paris. He left Russia, his homeland, in 1922, so it was the post-revolution Russia, and he saw no future for himself and for his family there, and also as an artist he saw no future anymore. And um, so he first traveled to Germany, to Berlin, to be precise, and after that, after around about a year, he then traveled back to France, where he stayed in the early 20th century. He arrived there in 1911 as a young man. So he came there and he was ready to really dive into the French art scene and uh, establish himself in Paris as a painter. And the question is, like, what drove him to do this painting, which becomes so important in the years that will follow. And a lot of scholars think that his time in Germany had something to do with it, that he already faced some anti-Semitism. We all think about 1933 as the beginning of the Nazi movement in Germany, but that's not correct because that was the year when Hitler was appointed chancellor. But, of course, even in the 1920s, the Nazi party, the NSDAP, was already a very visible force in Germany, and especially in Berlin. And this painting, the first version of this painting, was made in 1923. Mm -hmm. Was it a direct response to what's called the Munich Putsch, which is this very famous event where sort of Hitler basically first came to the attention of the German public, right? Yeah, I think it's a mix of things. I think this was definitely something that influenced Chagall and he was very moved by it, I mean, in a negative way. It's also important to always point out that Chagall always experienced anti-Semitism, even in Russia, even in the United States, even after 1945. That was something that was part of his entire life. But yeah, seeing a party with an ideology that is so much driven by anti-Semitism and racism gain more and more power was definitely something he acknowledged. We don't know much about the first version. We only know one sketch that tells us a little bit about it, that it already had the main figures, the Jew with the Torah and also the angel in it, but we don't know much about it uh, beside that. So, But within his work during this time, it's a very extraordinary piece, but it was definitely that some circumstances really drove him to work on this piece, but then also put it aside in a way, which is also interesting. So he did put it aside, and the next time he picked it up was around 1933 when Hitler came to power, right? Exactly. And the interesting thing is that we know about the second version pretty much um, because there's a photograph of himself in front of this painting. So it's, of course, in black and white, so we cannot tell so much about the color, but it looks a little bit lighter than the final version. And he already added certain elements to the painting, but it's not as complicated as the final version. 1933, the year of Hitler's rise to power, he was appointed chancellor or elected chancellor of Germany. And so this was definitely a moment for Chagall to pick it up again, pick this idea up again. And the interesting part is also that this painting was exhibited in 1933 in a, a retrospective in Basel. So it's not just Chagall painting in his study and thinking his thoughts. It's also something he showed in public pretty early on. 
Is there any record of why he was dissatisfied enough with the painting to return to it again? Did he say anything about what made him return to it much later again? No, he, he later talked about this painting as the first one of many with a dark vision, you can say. Uh, so a series of painting where he is dealing with what was happening in Germany, but also in, in other parts of Europe with the gaining power of the National Socialists and them attacking different countries. But I mean, it's something you can find in his entire career that he's picking up paintings again. The Falling Angel is not the only painting in the exhibition that has been altered several times, but it's the biggest one. And it's definitely the one with one of the strongest messages, I would say. And then the final version, he actually made it in the United States, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Could you just explain to us what happened to him during the Second World War? Because he initially went to the south of France, is that correct? So Chagall and his wife moved first in 1939 to Saint-Dié-sur-Loire. That's south of Paris. It's between Orléans and Tours. And then one year later, he moved to God in South France. And uh, because France was attacked by the National Socialists, by the Germans, and was occupied by the Germans in large parts, but the South was still independent. And a lot of people who were persecuted by the uh, National Socialist regime moved to South France and felt safe there. Same with Chagall. But also this safety was not for certain. And so in 1941, he immigrated to the United States. He also, there was a stop in Marseille, there was a stop in Portugal. And he was pretty lucky because there was a committee which was uh, focused on uh, rescuing artists from Europe. And the Museum of Modern Art in New York played a very important role. And a very important person in this process is Varian Fry, who was the agent who actually traveled to Europe and talked to these artists. He had an entire list and tried to convince them to come to the United States. And he's a very important and, and very impressive figure. And Chagall didn't want to leave, of course. But after he was arrested, he sensed, OK, I have to have to leave and I have to bring my family and I have to bring my paintings, which was very complicated. He was already in a very established artist and very successful. But during this time, he had financial problems because no one was buying his paintings anymore. So he also needed help in financing the visa. Solomon Guggenheim played a very important role in doing this. So he had a lot of help, but still it was a very intense and very dramatic flight to the United States where he arrived in 1941 and stayed until 1948. So you're correct, the Falling Angel final version was painted during the last year of his exile in the US. So when you say that, that means it was after the war, but it's clearly informed by the darkness of that period as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, a kind of strange thing that a lot of people think, oh, it's 1945, the war ended, and then Chagall is done. That's, of course, not the case. And I think almost every Jewish person would probably say yes to this, like, no, it's not done with this. This was the moment when the range and the brutality of the atrocities of national socialist regime came to light. I mean, especially in the US and especially in, in Jewish immigrant circles, people already knew a lot, but they didn't know the full scale of it. And so for Chagall, it was, of course, very natural to still work on these themes and to react to things that also happened after 1945 and also struggling with finding a voice and finding images for what he learned from the news. 
So the falling angel also fits into this entire story. He finished it during exile and after the war, but still it was very much attached to what happened between 33 and 45. So let's talk about the final version mm -hmm. and then its forms, its colors, its extraordinary iconography. You still have, as you described earlier, the angel and the Jewish man with the Torah scrolls. Mm -hmm. They are still present. Are they altered from those earlier versions though? That's hard to tell. I mean, color-wise, we cannot really say. What's interesting is that the angel was kind of genderless in the first versions. You cannot really tell. Is it a female or male angel? And the angel becomes a woman. It's a female figure in bright red. So in general, the painting is very dark. And it might be that he darkened the entire composition color-wise. But yeah, we cannot say it for sure. But the angel is really... a powerful and very bright and colorful force and force is the right word because it, I mean it's the fall of the angel so the angel kind of like breaks down into the world like falls onto the earth with a lot of force and brutality but nevertheless the figure is not a brutal because normally you say that the fall of the angel is the story of how evil came into this world that's the traditional Christian story of it But here the angel is not necessarily the evil or is not necessarily something that's bringing the evil. It seems more that the angel herself is shocked by what she sees when she falls down from the heavens because her mouth is open and especially her eye. So one eye is covered by hair, but this one eye is like wide open. So it's more of not someone who's aggressive and he's, who's attacking this Jewish person on the left side, but someone who's more like shocked and traumatized herself. And then, of course, that eye is repeated in the animal that's right at the front of the composition. Yeah, the cow. With yes, exactly. It's a cow <laughs> with a very human eye, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about the animals in Chagall's painting and what they stand for. And I always try to tell people who already saw a couple of the paintings during the last days, It's very complicated or it's not really helpful to really stick to these details and say, like, what is the cow symbolizing? I mean, those are animals that are very normal to all of us, also to Chagall, like an everyday animal, like a cow. There are cocks, hens, some goats. So animals we all know and We're not surrounded by them, but um, it's not a lion or a tiger or anything. So, of course, they in some way symbolize home. They symbolize the feeling at home and a sense of belonging, you can say. I mean, they're animals, but they do very human things. So, And sometimes Chagall even depicts himself as an animal, as with the face of a cow or something like that. So this world of Chagall is still one that doesn't follow like a naturalistic logic. So you have to kind of get away from this. But yeah, the animals are very human-like in his paintings. And of course, one of the key elements of the later version is this Christian iconography. We mm -hmm. have a crucifixion and what looks like a mother and child. Mm -hmm. What was the significance of that? Well, that's something that already happens in the late 1930s. In 1938, Chagall depicts or finishes the white crucifixion, which is probably the most important crucifixion depiction he ever did, which was the first crucifixion and also is one of the most important works from this period is now in the Chicago Institute of Art. And this is also interesting because he depicted it in 1938 and he also exhibited it this year in Paris, 
So the interesting thing about the crucifixions is they exist already in his work in earlier versions, but only here and there. And during the 30s and 40s, this becomes one of his, I wouldn't say favorite subjects, but one of the most important subjects for his entire work. And he's depicting Jesus as a Jewish man with the talit. Also, this is not something that he invented. We can find depictions of that early on in the 19th century. But it is, of course, an interesting choice to pick up maybe the most important subject in Christian iconography and then mix it with the historical background of Jesus, who definitely was of Jewish faith. And uh, so this was for Chagall a way, first of all, to find an image that represents the suffering of Jewish people and the fact that Jewish people were murdered in Europe. But it also addresses a Christian audience. It's a topic, it's a depiction every Christian person knows, and it also shows them, see here, it's now Christians that kill the Jewish brother. So Christ was a Jew. So just keep this in mind. It's a very strong message. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't give Chagall the credit of doing works like this. Like, you know, we all know Guernica and Picasso as a very political artist. That's very clear that he did a work like this. But Chagall, as someone who didn't appear as extremely political, really had a message and was really searching for ways how he could address a wide audience and show them, look, look what's happening at this moment in Europe. And as I said, he started these paintings in Europe, not just in the American exile. One of the crucial things about this period that you're focusing on the show is, is the darkness, that extraordinary mm -hmm. darkness in the work. And of course, that is punctuated still with colour. And he's famous for you know, his extraordinary colour and, and his vivid colour. Yeah. It's still present, even amid the darkness, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's two strong aspects of Chagall. Is he's an incredible narrator. He tells so many stories just in one painting. And that's also one advice I can give everyone who sees the show. Just stay still and watch and listen what the painting has to tell you. It takes some time and also to digest what you see because it's pretty heavy in parts. And the other amazing thing about Chagall is the way he works with color. He's one of the best colorists in avant-garde art, definitely. And that's something you can also see in these paintings because, yes, they are darker in color and they're darker subject-wise, but it's still Chagall. So... <laughs> So they're still very impressive and he really knows how to use color to tell his story and even to tell very dark and very dramatic stories. And there's the beautiful contrast, of course, of colors and the way he, for instance, uses primary colors amid that mm -hmm. dark scheme. So the, the red of the angel and then the yellow of the cow and the blue of the, both exactly. the, the Jewish exactly. man's face and the, the violin. It's, it's the range of color and the way he can command that sort of balance in the work, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also a way to kind of lead the eye through the painting because when you stand in front of it, it's pretty big. You think like, oh, this is kind of overwhelming. There's so much going on. And of course, you focus first on the red angel, so bright and, and powerful. But then you see the cow and also the crucifixion is a little bit of um, green. Also the flying man on top, which mm. probably is a self-portrait in a way, because Chagall once said, I'm the man in the air. I'm the man who has no place where I can stay. Mm. So yeah, the color also helps you, your eye to wander 
over the canvas and get the full story that he's telling here. Thank you so much for telling us about this painting. Thank you very much. Chagall World in Turmoil is at the Schoen Kunsthalle in Frankfurt, Germany until the 19th of February 2023. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Gabriele, Rowan, Tokeny and Ilka. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.